Turn with me then to Matthew chapter 18, and we're going to continue our study through Matthew's gospel. And today's topic is the subject of church discipline, or I've titled this message, Care in Confrontation. There is an accountability that we have as the church together to care for one another, even bringing to light the sin of one another that we might walk in faithfulness. But it brings us to this question that I want to consider. What's the best way to get people to obey? What's the best way to motivate people to mind the rules of a society, maybe of a nation even, or just of, say, a church? What should you do? You could fine them, right? You could charge them for disobeying. You could just book them. You could put them in jail. Or you could incentivize them. You could reward them for for following the rules. Or here's another option. How about public shaming for lawbreakers? This seems to be China's new strategy for curbing jaywalking in their streets. With all of their great advances in technology and general invasion of all privacy, they're using facial recognition in their cameras that if you get caught on film jaywalking on their many cameras, they will instantly broadcast your name and your picture on a giant digital billboard for all of those around to see. That's one way to get at it, the threat of public shaming. Now, some of you might think that that's kind of what church discipline is. We're going to put on this PowerPoint all of your sins and just publicly shame you before everyone else, your friends and spiritual family. No, that's not what church discipline is about at all, as we'll see this morning. This isn't about scaring people that you might humiliate them, that that will curb them from indulging in sin. Now, there, there does come at times when a public element to church discipline happens, but even then, the goal is never shame. It's not about making the offender feel bad, certainly for his own sake, as if that's some kind of punishment. The goal and reason we have what's called church discipline is restoration. It's restorative discipline. It's redemption. It's rescue. The goal is to call a brother away from danger who's pursuing headlong in sin, who's going after a spiritually suicidal direction, And we're calling them, brother, don't go that way. That's to your hurt. That's to your soul's danger. Run away from this. Come back to Christ. And because we know, we know the devastation that sin causes. And it would be the most unloving thing to do to not say anything if you saw your brother pursuing sin. To not do all that you could to call him, to come to his senses to see the danger he's in, to to recognize the damning effects of those sins he's pursuing. And so in the right way then, you see, to care in the community of faith means you have to confront. You have to confront our brothers who are being entangled and captivated by sin. So care in Christ's community, and that's what we're going to see this morning. Care in Christ's community means you must confront your brothers who are being led away by sin. But it also means there's a right way to do it. There's a right way to do it. This isn't about public shaming. It's not about public retribution. This is about calling a brother. It's rescuing him and restoring him back to Christ and back to the church. And so he gives us, Christ does, in Matthew 18. We're going to look namely at verses 12 to 17. He gives us the right pursuit and the right process that we can confront one another in the right way. So let's see that first here with this care and confrontation. The first thing we we need to hold in our mind is that we have to have the right pursuit. We have to have the right goal. Why would you ever think about trying to confront someone about their wrong? And when you do, what needs to be in your mind? What's the goal? Why am I doing this? 
We don't do so to, again, for the mere pursuit of justice. That's not what this is about when we need to confront a brother in sin. Nor is this about the pursuit of equity or retribution. This is about restoration. We're calling and pleading our brother to come home, run away from your sin and come home to Christ. Now, why? Why do we even do that? Why are we engaging here? I'd rather just stay out of it. Well, we do it because we see here is because Christ loves them. He loves that one who has wandered away. He loves them despite how wayward they are. He loves them despite how much shame they've caused Christ's name. And in that sense, he loves them despite all the trouble that they've caused him and all the trouble that he's caused his fellow sheep in the church. Even still, Christ loves them. And to picture this for us, Christ takes us out to the pasture. We looked at this briefly last time, but we need to revisit it because this is what Jesus sets out as the framework. What you need to have in mind is you might even consider confronting someone in their sin. You need to have this picture of care that we see here. So let's look at it. Let's look at Matthew 18, verse 12. He says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray... Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? It's a rhetorical question because the answer is obvious. Of course he does. Of course he does. Why? Because the shepherd loves. He cares for the sheep such that he's going to do anything. Look at verse 13. And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. He has such great joy. He would do anything to rescue them. And he has great joy when they've been restored despite all the trouble that's been caused. Is that how you would respond if you were that shepherd? Let's say you're the shepherd and there's that wayward sheep who's gotten out of the pen once again, right? And this wayward sheep has then drove you on a rescue mission for days, going over great hills, you're going through deep valleys, you're going across long stretches. For days, you're out there, you're exhausted. You're even starting to worry about the 99 sheep that got left behind. You're hungry, your feet hurt, your plans for the next few days have just been all blown up because of this this dumb sheep. They would have just stayed in their pen, right? None of this would have happened. How inconsiderate, how selfish of that sheep. Now, the shepherd might be just in thinking like that. He might be right, in a sense, in thinking like that. But thankfully, that's not how our shepherd is. Not at all. And why not? Because he loves the sheep. He loves the sheep desperately. He wants nothing more for the sheep to be safe. That's his concern. Look at verse 14. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven, that one of these little ones should perish. We talked about this last time. These little ones, these are God's children. These are believers and all believers. He, the Father, loves them and desperately so. What He wants for them is no danger. He wants them to be safe and secure and rescued, lest any of them would perish and be destroyed. Now, this is important. We're going to talk in a moment about confrontation. This is the context that Jesus lays forth before he ever gets to why would we ever call out someone else's sin? Because first, we need to reckon and remember. We need to remember this kind of loving shepherd. We need to remember what our mission is, what the sacrifice, what the pursuit is all about, why we're about these things. Why are we about them? Because the Father loves that sheep that's running away. 
And he's calling us to love that sheep like he does. And that means we have to engage. We need to call them out of this danger. That's the motive. That's the goal when we confront our brother. So it begins with checking our heart, doesn't it? When you think you need to go talk to somebody about their sin, you need to check your motive. Why do I think I need to talk to so-and-so about this? Is it to win my brother back? Is it because I see the spiritual danger he's in and I'm really concerned for him? Or are you just upset? You're personally offended. You're hurt. Ah, This will be a way to get back at them. They really need to know something. When you're coming to your brother, it's not about vindicating you. It's not about justifying you. It's about rescue. It's about restoration. It's about being burdened by a sincere care for a brother who's in danger. That's what this is about. That's the right pursuit, which takes us to where we'll spend most of our time. That brings us to then the right process. So if we first clarified why we would dare engage in such a situation like this, it's because we care so much for this little one like the father does. Now we're ready to consider the process, okay? Well, how do we go about this? And Jesus lays out for us, as you're maybe quite familiar, he lays out for us four steps or stages in this process of what you can call careful, that is full of care, confrontation. This process of what we call is restorative church discipline. And you see it starts small, and if there's still sin involved that's not being repented of, then it goes from there. But it starts very small. But before we even get there to unpack this process of discipline, we need to start with what's happening. What would actually start and engage us and move us to call out our brother? So let's look just the very beginning here, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, and there's two really important aspects of this you need to observe here. This is where it all starts. When your brother sins against you. So here's two observations. One, you need to notice this is a family affair. This is about when your brother sins against you. He's talking about, Jesus is talking about, he's instructing us how to deal with sin in the family of faith. This isn't how to deal with sin outside the church, but inside. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 5, God will judge the outsiders. He's given us the responsibility to deal with sin on the inside. How to deal with sin among your fellow brothers and sisters in the family of God. If your brother sins against you. And so this is a family affair, which means we must deal with sin. Now, this doesn't give you, does not give you, because we're family, free reign to vent all of your qualms and annoyances and frustrations with your brothers and sisters. That's not what this offers, because this is the second observation. Look what Jesus says when he notes, if your brother sins against you. So when you're upset about something your brother or sister did, and you're thinking, oh, I really need to go talk to them. (laughs) Well, first ask yourself, So what they did actually sin. Was it clear disobedience to God and His Word? Before you go and confront somebody, can you even put a Bible verse on what this is all about? Can you find a clear Scripture passage that prohibits what they did? That is, give biblical language to what this interchange is all about. 
Or were you just offended by what they did or said or thought or you thought they thought? Or whatever it was, it just didn't suit you. You just didn't like it. Think about it. Go to Scripture. Pray about it. Did what they do and offended you so much? Is it defined by sin in the Word of God? If not, you may do well to keep that to yourself then. Now, there is a place to talk about offenses and frustrations and annoyances and whatever else. Because we're in relationship with one another. We're family. Families have to deal with all of those kind of things. But the authority and the gravity by which you approach someone will change dramatically when you're not talking merely about something you didn't like, but when you're talking about something that's sin, that is God didn't like it. Brother, and that's why we got to talk. And that takes us to step one then. With that established, we get to the first step of restorative discipline. And step one is really one-to-one confrontation. Verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now first, just as we begin there, recognize Jesus gives commands here. These are not suggestions when he says, go and tell him his fault. He's bidding us to do this. When your brother sinned against you, you must. It's a responsibility. You got to go. You got to talk to him. You got to show him his wrong. You got to point out his error, his sin. Rebuke him even. Again, these are commands. Why? What's going on here? It's this. Sin will not be permitted in the family of God's people to just be undealt with. To, in that sense, just be ignored or overlooked without any thought given to it or left to fester. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But why? What's the underlying presupposition here? It's this, that in the family of faith, the expectation of the Christian life It's not merely that we all come and hear a sermon together. It's not merely that we all say we're Christians or we went through baptism. It's not all that we come and listen to the words of Jesus, but it's the expectation, yes, we will listen and do what? Obey what he says. That's the default of the Christian life. There's not, oh, I listen to Jesus, and if you're really serious, you'll actually do what he says. No, the Christian life base level is you listen and obey. That's what we call one another to in the family of faith. That's what it means to be a Christian. And as part of the community of this family, we need that kind of accountability. We need this help to obey. Now, if we must then confront somebody, as we've talked about, the point is not to shame them. It's not about embarrassing the brother. But if we're going to try and help in this way, We don't do so by going to gossip or the point isn't to complain to others about what so-and-so did against you. You don't come up to your brother and say, oh, so-and-so did something. You should really pray for them. Complaining veiled by a secret prayer request. No, what are you supposed to do? When your brother sinned against you, you go and go talk to who? You go talk to your brother. Go talk to the one who sinned against you. And how do you do it? You do it privately one-to-one, just you and him. Again, because you're not out to embarrass. Look what it says. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Just the two of you, the sinner and the one who has sinned against. That's it. Again, because what's the goal? What is this about? 
Can't I just let it alone and let it be? Look at verse 15 at the end. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained or won your brother. This is the goal. It's not justice. The goal isn't shame. The goal isn't punishment. The goal is restoration. The goal is to get them off the dangerous road of sin and back to God. See, if he's going after sin, your brother's in danger. His spiritual life is on a suicidal trajectory. He's taken with sin, and he needs your help. You've seen it. He needs your help to call him back. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to have won your brother or to have gained your brother? But what it means is that he repented. He saw his sin. He confessed his sin. As applicable, he asked for confession for his sin first from the Lord, but also from anyone else that he's violated or sinned against. We've called him away out of this dangerous path, from, away from the sin that's warring against his soul, and we've invited him back. Come back to Christ. Turn from your sin and come back to safety with Jesus. Confess that sin. Turn from that sin and turn back to him, oh brother. We do so knowing and holding out the promises like 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. Brother, you know if you confess your sins, He is faithful. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Come back to us. Let this not stand between us. Don't mess with this sin. We're calling the brother back to right fellowship with God and with his church. And let it be said here then, as soon as the erring brother repents, this whole process of discipline, wherever we are in the process, step one, two, three, or four, as soon as they repent, the whole process is over. Frame it another way. What is this pursuit of church discipline all about? It's all about unrepentant sin, a hardness in one's sin. Understand, and I trust you do, even as Christians, we sin all the time. First John chapter 1 is really clear about that, actually. If you don't think you're sin, sinning or at all in error, First John 1 says you're lying. And you do not have the truth in you. So we're going to sin. We're going to sin against one another. That's part of being in the church. A whole bunch of people are sinners. But the issue is then, are we repenting sinners? Are we seeing our sin, confessing it, turning from it, resolving by the Spirit's help to not be engaged in it anymore, soliciting help from one another? Brothers, sisters, help me stay away from this sin. I want to honor Jesus. That attitude is totally different and really has little to do with this process of church discipline. What we're dealing with, we're dealing with an attitude that says, that's not sin, what you're calling sin even though God's word says so, or I love it too much anyways, I'm still going to keep going my own way, I'm not going to listen to you about this. I will not turn from that sin. That's where this process of church discipline is engaged. As soon as they repent, the process is over. We've won back our brother. But until then, we pursue these steps. And the first one is to privately, one-to-one, bring their sin to light, pray for them. And again, we do so hoping upon hope that they will see it, that they will repent, and they will turn. And if they don't, then we go to the next step, step two. But before we even get to step two, I think there's two things we should clarify, just for a moment. First, there's this question. Must the sin be against me personally 
for me to have the responsibility or even standing to confront it. Because you read the ESV here in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, then go and talk to him. While some other translations just more simply read, if your brother sins, that is not necessarily against you, you just have to observe his sin. Well, which is it? And actually, the ancient copies of the Greek text here, some have against you, some do not. And it's frankly, it's hard to discern which one Matthew originally wrote or that Jesus originally said. Either way, we know by looking at all of Scripture, this much is quite clear. If you see your brother sinning and in trouble, whether it's against you or not, you have a responsibility to bail him out. Listen to this. Listen to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. We read, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. So that's anyone caught in any transgression, whether it's against you or not, the spiritual ones, those who have the spirit within them, which is all Christians, you have a responsibility to go and restore and intervene, lest they do themselves spiritual damage. We are on a mission to rescue and save whether they directly sin against us or not. We still care for our brother. The next clarification is this. Should we or must we confront every believer about every sin we see? Is that what we're dealing with here? I mean, Jesus says, if he sins, go and rebuke him. Well, keep that in mind, one, with some other things we said already. But two, think about this verse as well. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all... Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers a multitude of sins. At times, it can actually be the loving thing to do to overlook, cover over, and forgive a whole host of sins and offenses. Okay. Well, what's the criteria? How do I know if this is a sin I should just cover and look past? versus a sin I should go and confront? Well, first, on the very personal level, when this Christian has sinned against you, if we're in that scenario, has the person wronged you so much that you just can't look beyond it, that you can't really think and consider that person in Christ without thinking about this sin that's fractured your relationship? Has it made it virtually impossible to relate to that brother as if this had never happened? Or another example, if, if the sin between you has now made attending worship together very awkward, does attending worship and you know they're going to be at that service suddenly become awkward, painful, or challenging? If so, these are all clues that there is a sin that has ruptured your relationship with your brother or sister in Christ, and that's something that needs to be dealt with. Now, here's some other things to consider. Let's say when the sin was not directly against you. Again, is it something I should overlook or is it something I should confront? Well, ask yourself this question. Is the sin I just saw my brother do or I have the good assumption that he thought something or etc. is that characteristic about him? Is this the pattern of his or her life? Understand, it'd be fine to confront me if you see me get frustrated or angry about something. But first think about, but is that how he generally acts? Or is this really out of character for him? Because maybe, and have you been there? You've sinned, and then immediately you, you regret it. 
you feel the guilt already? You're instantly confessing to Christ? I mean, we're all going to mess up and sin against one another. We've talked about this time and again. You can expect that even at church. But it comes down to this. Is this person characterized by repentance? Do we see them turn from such sins? Or do these sins have to be, are they blind to them? Are they stuck in them? Are they characterized by them? Do you see a pattern? Otherwise, if there is no pattern, the occasional sin that is so out of character of this person, again, assuming it's not otherwise immediately dangerous to them or anyone else, it can be a glory, a loving thing to cover over that sin. But of course, not always. That's why we pray for wisdom. That's why we pray even for boldness. Understand this, whatever is done, whether we're covering over or whether we're confronting sin, it needs to be done in love, right? A love for our brother and a love for Christ's name among his people. So that's step one. It's one-to-one confrontation. Step two, then, if the brother does not repent, does not acknowledge his sin when it's brought to him, we go to step two, which is a few-to-one, verse 16. So you see the erring brother, he doesn't listen, he doesn't repent. But if he does not listen, he doesn't heed your rebuke, what do you then do? It says, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So after the private confrontation, the one-to-one goes nowhere. Other brothers need to join you for this next confrontation, this next rebuke to the erring brother. Now why? Why? What's the rationale? Why are, we, why are we telling people, other people, and getting them involved? Is it to intimidate the sinning brother? Is it to pressure him or shame him? Oh, we finally got to public shaming. This is it. No, it's not what this is about. Why do you bring others with you? It's for protection. It's for accountability. Accountability and protection for both the confronter and the one being confronted. Why? To ensure that everything is right and equitable and fair and clear and understood. Or in Jesus' words that he says here, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now you hear witness and you understand it. There's like all of this legal and court terminology. And with that, it can be easy to be confused about what's intended here. We read about charges and facts being established. We hear words like evidence and witness. And such that we might assume, well, the witness then has to be somebody who sees the act, saw the actual sin committed or the crime. And if that's the case, you understand then, if a sin was done in private, then there'd be no recourse or proper confrontation because no one else saw it. But that's not what's intended here by witness. It's not what they are witnesses are or of in this case. They're not testifying that they saw the sin itself no, you're taking them with you to be witnesses of this next confrontation. This, witnesses of this rebuke itself, again, to verify that it's clear and right and equitable and fair. In that sense, these witnesses are not like witnesses being brought into a criminal court case, who the witness is then pointing out and saying, oh yeah, he did it, it was him. That, that's not the kind of witness we're dealing with. These witnesses are like when you sign a contract. And you have witnesses who verified that you signed it. You know that you were in your right mind and not under compulsion. And all of that jargon. 
Or like when you're at a wedding and you have the many witnesses who are there to be present. They're not the ones getting married, but they are testifying to this new arrangement or this issue that's come up. In the same way, these witnesses are establishing that there was a confrontation now that's taking place. And the sin was clearly laid out and it was told to this brother. And here was the brother's response. They're witnesses of the confrontation. Now, does this mean the one or two other witnesses that they must just by default then side with the accuser? No questions asked. No, not at all. Actually, they're coming as fellow family members to help establish and confirm what's really going on with our two brothers here, that they're in conflict. We're coming in as fellow peacemakers. We want to help clarify and understand what's going on here. Which means these witnesses, as they come in, they need to be wise. We must exercise grace and discernment. You've got to take in counsel like Proverbs 18, verse 13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. Or Proverbs 18, verse 17. The one who states his case first seems right until the other comes and examines him. That's part of what these witnesses are doing. They're trying to get to the bottom of this. What's going on? to help establish, figure out what is happening. Has a sin really been done here? Or is this some kind of misunderstanding? Why are these two not seeing eye to eye? And finally, is the brother truly unrepentant? Or is he blind in his sin? That's what they're there to try and figure out. And if so, those witnesses then join the growing chorus that's calling this brother away from his sin to confess it and come back to God. Because again, restoration is the goal. Okay, but when that's going on and they call him to repent, what happens when the sinning brother won't heed them either? He won't heed the two or three. What do you do next? Well, you move then to step three. So you start one-to-one and then you go few-to-one And now we go the church to one. The church is mobilized to call this brother to repent. Look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. So if he won't listen to you or the couple other brothers with you now, the whole church has to be brought in on this. You need to tell it to the church. You need to reveal it to the family of faith of our brother's obstinate sin. Again, why? Public humiliation. That's what this is about. Finally, we're there. No. So we can gossip about him. No. So we can think bad about him. No. So we can self-righteously condemn him, knowing we're better than him. No. What is this about? This is a call to mobilize the assembly to engage this rescue effort. Some of us have gone in, and it didn't go well. We need backup. We need the assembly to come and call this brother away from his destruction. To activate the church, to pursue this wandering brother, to join the call. Now this huge chorus of the whole congregation, brother, you're running away from Christ. Come back to him. Come back to us. That's the implication of what unfolds in the latter half of verse 17. If he refuses to listen to them, that's the two or three, tell it to the church. Now, why does the church need to hear? What's the point? And if he refuses to listen even to the church, what's the implication or the assumption there? Why was the church told? What were they going to go then do? They were going to go call him to repent. They were going to say, brother, you're in sin. You need to come back. 
And then we move to step four if, they won't listen, if he won't listen to the whole congregation. And we'll get to there in a moment. The implication is they heard about the erring brother and they reached out to him and pleaded with him to confess his sin and repent. The church isn't being notified, is not being notified because this is just a juicy tidbit or, boy, this is really interesting, or just even as an FYI, or even just a general prayer request. No, the church is being told because we have together a responsibility to act, you see, to get involved, to call our erring brother away from sin. This is our obligation to one another and to Christ our King, the great shepherd. A call to be involved in one another's lives, even when it's messy, even when it's really inconvenient, even when you'd really rather not. A call to hold one another accountable, lest we be captivated and swept away in sin. And that's love. That's care. That's care like a family cares. And that's what the church is, the local church. To ignore your brother's sin, to turn a blind eye to it, to just let him run after immorality. I just don't want to get involved. You don't have that option as part of the family. We need one another. We need this kind of help and accountability. But to that, we don't only just need this as part of the local church. It's our responsibility to each other. We must do this. Christ calls us to it. This is our responsibility as fellow members of the church. The court and responsibility of church discipline is not some private matter just between the erring brother and even just the church leaders. Now, surely the elders will take a lead and guiding role in this kind of thing when it happens. But look at the text again. The text does not say, if your brother sins against you, Go and tell the elders. What does it say as it opens? Who are you supposed to go out to talk to first and foremost? You go talk to your brother. You don't need the elders back up on this. You've got Christ telling you what to do here. And let's say it goes poorly. Again, to return to the text, it does not say, if he refuses to listen to them, that's the two or three, it doesn't say go and tell the elders, does it? No, you tell it to the church. Why? Because this isn't merely the elder's responsibility. This is our responsibility. This is what it means to be family, called together in the name of Christ. It's not as if the elders have some special, some special authority to excommunicate someone. No, this is the responsibility and power, really, we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, that all the members share together. For even as this text goes on, and it talks about the, the authority of the church and these cases of membership and discipline, we read about power, not the power of the Pope, certainly, not the power even of Peter, and not the power that the pastor has. But look at verse 18. We looked at this before, but let's revisit it now. Verse 18 of Matthew 18, truly I say to you, whatever you, okay, and we talked about this, the you there in the original language is plural. So if we have a southern translation, it would read, y'all here. Whatever y'all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever y'all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And from the context here, who is the y'all? Go back to verse 17. Who was the y'all that was told? It was the church. The congregation of believers from verse 17. 
We'll talk about it again more in the coming weeks, but suffice it to say here, the church is notified to then be mobilized, called to action to rescue this brother. And that means to call out his sin, to call out the dangers of this path of unrepentance, invite him back into Christ's mercy. And certainly it's a powerful thing when the collective voice of the church stands together to say, brother, where are you going? Don't go this way. We love you. Come back. That's the duty of the church to care for the erring brother. Well, what if he won't listen then? What's next? Excommunication. Step four. We go from one to one, few to one, the church to one, but then if he won't heed that, then he's just not one. He's not one of us. And he's removed from the assembly. Verse 17, now in full. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. You can no longer see him as a brother or an insider. He's an outsider. He's an unbeliever. The first apostles were all Jewish. Of course, Jesus was a Jew. And in the, in the Jewish community, to be on the outside, you can't get more outside than being a Gentile or tax collector. Certainly not part of the family. You're so beyond the pale you're an unbeliever. And realize this can get rather awkward because that person that's being put out, they might still call themselves a believer. They still claim the name Christian. And that's why the church has to here intervene. Because what's the church saying? The church is saying about that person, no, no, you say you're a Christian, but you're fooling yourself. You're like what Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7. You're going to come to him and say, Lord, Lord. And Jesus is going to say, but I never knew you. And on what ground will we dare say that? Well, because you live in unrepentant sin. Jesus says, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. In other words, your lifestyle discredits your confession. We can't believe you. I can't believe you're a genuine believer and live like this. That's how grave this is. We don't even see you just as a struggling believer. We understand that. But you're so persistent in your sin, you cannot even be a believer at all by what we see. You're an outsider. That's what's behind the term, he shall be to you a Gentile and tax collector. Again, what's the intent? What's the purpose of all this? Public shaming? No. Ostracize them? No. Again, work it back. What have we seen? Verse 14, what was this all about? It's all about rescue, keeping the brother from perishing. Verse 15, what was this all about? It's all about winning our brother back. Indeed, we don't have time to look at it in detail, but in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul instructs the Corinthian church on this case of discipline. He calls them to remove a brother who's engaged in open and egregious sin. But again, why? What's the motive? He he tells them to deliver this guy over to Satan. He's living like he's on Satan's team. He needs to be removed from the church and be associated with Satan's team, not Christ's. But even as he calls them to do this, notice why they must do it. Here's what the apostle writes. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan. Why? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. The hope is still restoration, even now. That this statement where we say, brother, you can't live like this. We can't even call you a brother anymore. That that'll wake him up. That that's what the Lord will use to show I am captivated by sin. Oh, forgive me. 
The hope and goal is not destruction, it's restoration. Again, all that he still might be saved. That's what care in the church looks like. Even when there has been hurt, even when there's sin. But a hope with a God like ours is that it's always going to work to restoration. Now, this is where things actually get really hard. As if excommunication of a church member is not painful and hard enough. Maybe the most difficult aspect of this is through all of it, maintaining a heart that's ready to forgive. That despite how much you've been wronged, despite how you've been disregarded and dismissed, despite how much the brother hurt you as he pursued his sin, that you still maintain a heart of mercy, ready to forgive. And how can you do that? How can you maintain a heart that's merciful, ready to forgive? We'll look at that in Matthew 18. We'll see, we'll see more of that here in the coming weeks. But Paul gets at the same truth, the same answer in Colossians chapter 3. He urges the Colossians this way. He says this in Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Again, those are the kind of qualities we're going to need if we're going to be able to confront with care, right? But then Paul goes on bearing with one another, and note this, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. That's it. How could you ever forgive? How can you win the battle against bitterness? How can you ever show mercy? You got to go back and remember. You got to meditate, dwell on, and memorize, and marvel at how God has first forgiven you. A sinner like you, and as wayward and persistent in your sin as you were, he still forgave you as you came. And he forgave you freely, completely, not with reservation and caveats, and we'll see. He just received you. You know, you had run off, so to speak, and you thought, oh, I'm going to return home. And as you start going home to God, we know this from the picture of the prodigal son, he sees you coming, and the father runs to you. And he embraces you and he fetches his robe for you. And you try mumbling something to yourself like, I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. I'm not worthy to be part of this family. He has none of that. He just takes you in. My son is home. He was lost. But he's home and he's safe with me. And don't we rejoice over this? Don't we love his mercy to us? Isn't that good news? Don't you love Christ for his grace? Well, the word is then, can you show a little bit of that to your brothers and sisters in the church? And I'll tell you what, that'll be impossible. If you're focused on your rights, if you're focused on how much you've been wronged, and you might even be right about how wrong you've been, but you would certainly be wrong to think that God has not been far more merciful to you. So then, bear with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. That will make a glorious gospel, Christ-exalting church. A church that can welcome and urge the wayward back home. Let's pray we would be that. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do pray for mercy. Mercy on us. Forgive us for our bitterness. Forgive us for our 
selfishness and our lack of love that's not willing to engage. Uh, I know it's hard. I know it seems easier not to engage. We thank you, though, for the gift of the church and, and the ministry you've given us, empowered us, and called us to one another, that we wouldn't pursue heart after sin and be left to ourselves, that you've given us family who loves you and loves us and will hunt us down in the right way because they love us. So God, may we be faithful to love one another like you've loved us, uh, to be gracious. Uh, May we be gracious when confronted, maybe even the wrong spirit or in the wrong way. May we be humble and ready to receive your truth. Uh, Because we know we don't come to you because we've attained anything. We come to you because Christ attained it all. And we give you all the glory for that. So we pray from us you would receive the glory as we would pursue holiness and righteousness and even in the right way to confront and point out sin, but all based on your grace. That's hard for us to hold together, so we look to you. Help us, O Christ, we pray. Amen.